Forget your perfect offering. Forget your perfect offering. And ring the bell that still can ring. And ring the bell that still can ring. There is a crack in everything. There is a crack in everything. That's how, That's how the light gets in. Hello, hello, and welcome to That's How the Light Gets In podcast. Thank you so much to Wild Choir for the music that you're hearing, which they recorded specifically for this podcast. My name is Brooke Anderson. If you're new here, I'm a social movement photographer, and I've been interviewing other artists and cultural workers here in the Bay Area and beyond who make our movement shine, who root our actions and the wisdom of our elders and our ancestors, and who create and defend culture to hold us and future generations through the best and the hardest of times. If you haven't heard it yet, I want to just really encourage you to go back and listen to last week's episode with Sholay Asgari and Champoy, two of the eight artists who altered their work at the Yerba Buena Center for the Arts on February 15th to speak out in support of a ceasefire in Palestine and to condemn that art institution's silence on genocide, as well as their censorship of artists. And I also want to just take a brief moment before we get into today's guests to give you a bit of an update on that situation. Since our episode last week, the YBCA issued a statement which the artists characterize as, quote, straight out of the Israeli lobby playbook. It called the artist demands, quote, discriminatory and claimed it would be, quote, too divisive and polarizing to oppose genocide. The YBCA then threatened to deinstall the art within 24 hours against the artist's wishes. And of course, that planned deinstallation would have constituted further censorship and blatant disregard for the level of care required to move the artwork, including the banca, the traditional Philippinex canoe that you heard Champoy describe in detail on last week's episode. In response to these threats and further censorship, the artists wrote an open letter to YBCA. In it, they noted, quote, YBCA curators are well aware that the sacred banca included in Champoy's installation requires a ceremony to be transported. We have communicated to the YBCA staff that the banca is not to be deinstalled without the consent and the presence of the artist and the Filipinx elders who steward its care. This is imperative due to the spiritual dimension of the work. We believe that all our works deserve this level of care and stand firm in requesting that our voices not be removed from this exhibition." End quote. The artists were supported in that demand by an incredible statement of solidarity by the YBCA employees themselves, which called on YBCA to, quote, leave the altered works on display in honor of the artists and their right to expression, end quote, and which also called on YBCA to apologize to the band Nine and to, quote, acknowledge, reckon with, and repair YBCA's legacy of extraction from indigenous communities, end quote, among other things. So in addition to the YBCA staff letter, the band nine artists received incredible support from the community. In over a week, 2,000 people signed a letter to amplify the artist's demands. You can read that letter and sign on to it yourself at bit.ly, so bit.ly backslash artists for Gaza, bit.ly backslash artists, the number four 
Gaza. And that's all lowercase. And we'll drop the links to all these letters into the show notes for you as well. So yeah, that's that's the update. But for more, go to last week's episode, episode five, in which I interviewed YBCA Band 9 artist Sholay Asgari and Champoy on why they altered their work. And in that, you can also hear Palestinian muralist Chris Gazale speaking live at the ex- exhibit in which the artists altered their own work. I'll continue to share updates as we get them on the situation at YBCA. But yeah, for now, I want to turn to this week's episode, which I'm just so excited about. I, For this episode, I interviewed two worker bees from the Beehive Design Collective, Sakura or Saku Saunders and Orion Camaro. The Beehive Collective is best known for its expansive narrative graphic posters and related campaigns that break down really big, complex issues and present them in accessible, engaging formats. Their incredibly intricate, hand-drawn illustrations become these popular education tools to support ongoing organizing and movement building. And y'all, this feels like such a vulnerable reveal or share on the depths of my Beehive Collective fangirldom here, but... I've had the Beehive Collective's poster, Mesoamerica Resiste, in my bedroom for like maybe a decade or more. It has moved apartment to apartment with me four or five times now. I think the last time I moved, I, I, I remember measuring the poster to decide if it would fit in the new spot before closing on the place. Like this poster has literally outlasted landlords, partners, jobs, box springs, dogs, like this is how much of a crush I've had on the Beehive Collective. Um, yeah, and curious if if you have artwork from the Beehive Collective in your home, in your office, let us know in the comments. Um, yeah, and then the, the other really fun thing about this episode is that I recorded it before the podcast actually existed. I had been dreaming up this podcast for a minute, but I hadn't actually published it yet when my partner Matt Okay, wait, uh, hang on. Brief shout out to Matt, who not only encouraged me to do the podcast when I had been kind of like randomly shit talking about doing it as a joke on this road trip, but then he actually like bought me a microphone, lent me headphones, gave me this quick and dirty tutorial on mic settings and audio compression and all the things. So anyway, thank you, Matt. But yeah, uh, the podcast wasn't yet a thing when my partner Matt and his organization, the Oil and Gas Action Network, hosted an event with Beehive Design Collective in Oakland. Yeah, so I, I asked him to introduce me to the bees, and then we recorded this episode in early January at the Bandaloop Studios in West Oakland, where I have a side hustle as a rigger for Bandaloop, which is a vertical dance company. And uh, it's their space that the Beehive Collective gave a talk in later that night. And then, you know, also part of what was so fun about coming back to this episode is that at the beginning of the episode, you know that I always ask guests, right? Like, who's an ancestor, elder, or a contemporary artist or cultural worker who has really informed their work, right? Well, when I asked Beehive Collective member Orion Camaro in this episode's recording, Orion answered, my friend Champoy, except I hadn't yet met Champoy, so I didn't know who that was, and so I was just like, oh yeah, cool, and then kept it moving. But then, of course, I ended up meeting Champoy later on in the course of documenting artists' art altering their work at YBCA in support of a ceasefire in a free Palestine. 
and recorded and published an episode with Champoy. And so it, it wasn't until later this week that I went back and listened to this recording with the Beehive Collective and clocked that Orion had actually shouted out Champoy as a major influence for them, which just, I don't know, it just feels like such a fun through line or full circle moment for me with this podcast. Um, yeah, anyway, I feel so grateful to have been able to be in conversation with Saku and Orion from the Beehive Design Collective about their latest project, The Caligory, a sister project to the Beehive. So, um, yeah, without further ado, let's get into it. Here's Saku and Orion. So welcome, Saku and Orion from the Beehive Design Collective. Welcome to That's How the Light Gets In podcast. How y'all doing? You're doing, doing great. great. Yeah, thank yeah. you so much for being on the show. I'm going to have y'all introduce yourselves, if you want to go ahead, Saku. Sure. So, um, my name's Saku. I currently live in Halifax, Nova Scotia, though I am from California. And um, I've been with the Beehive since 2008. But besides the Beehive, um, I would say my main work has been working with communities impacted by the Canadian mining industry. Um, so working with those communities to get justice. Yeah. Hi, everyone. Uh, great to be here. My name is Orion Camaro, uh, born and raised on Yokut's territory in Stockton, California, uh, but kind of go between the river and the bay um, in Huchun, Oakland, California. Uh, and uh, a lot of my work is really focused on arts activism and how do we use creativity as a means for uh, narrative change um so yeah uh, super excited to be here <laughs> excellent welcome welcome and today we are recording from the Bandaloop Studios in West Oakland on occupied Ohlone land, where later this evening you all will be holding one of the stops of your California tour. And uh, an aside, but my side hustle is a rigger for Bandaloop. And so it just feels really wonderful and sweet to have you all here in house with us. So thank you so much for making this one of your stops. And tonight you're going to be presenting part two of a sister project called The Caligory. And The Caligory, as I understand it, is a mega story trilogy of images and a creative education campaign about California's social and climate crises with an emphasis on the Central Valley and on the Bay Area. And so I want to have you all tell us about The Collective and about its latest work, The Caligory, in a moment. But first, we're starting each episode by asking each guest to share with us who is one ancestor, elder, or contemporary cultural worker who has really shaped your understanding of the role of artists and cultural workers in our social movements? So, Saku, you want to go first? Sure. Well, um, I have, you know, many uh, people who mentored me along the way, um, but I feel like, you know, who really taught me how to be, you know, with an activist project and how to be of assistance to social movements um, with a kind of emphasis on the process uh, that we were in as a collective uh, was actually a local collective called Fault Lines. It was an indie media newspaper uh, in the Bay Area around the early 2000s. And um, one of the things that really made an impression on me was that there was this one person in the collective that was really gung-ho and would always um, design a mock-up you know, before we got to the meeting and just did a lot of work. And um, as a collective, we actually asked him to step back and not do as much work and even uh, decided that it was okay to publish the paper less. 
um, and had rotating coordinators for each um, issue. And I always thought that was really interesting, you know, kind of an anti-capitalist value to promote where we didn't care about putting the paper out as much as long as we were putting it out in such a way that everyone was getting a chance to um, be the person kind of, you know, in the leadership of it um, and how important that process was. Um, so I don't know, that was the first anarchist collective I was ever a part of. So that really made an impression on me. I love that, that shared leadership, and it feels so in line with what I know about how the Beehive Collective works, which I'm excited to to get into. But yeah, Orion, who would you put forward? Yeah, there are so many people, like Sako was saying, there's so many people that, yeah, are part of the ensemble of people that I'm inspired by, nourished by. Um, but the name that's coming to mind is actually, um, yeah, a dear friend of mine, um, Champoy, who is... Uh, a, fil- a fellow Philippine ex artist, um, and we've been working a lot with this project called the Banca Journey that um, is trying to recover um, pre-colonial indigenous Filipino lifeways through um, traditional canoes. Um, but I think they've taught me a lot about yeah the role of creativity and how it can be a really powerful force. Um, and sometimes like a cultural center for, for sustaining our movements, um, especially when there's so much intensity going on, like how we are nourished by the arts is very important. So, yeah. Excellent. Thank you so much for sharing. So I would love to have y'all just in your own words, tell me a little bit more about the Beehive Design Collective. Who are y'all? What do you do? And how did you come to the collective? So the Beehive Design Collective is a collective of artists, activists, educators, um, and organizers. And uh, what we're largely known for, though we, um, you know, in our heyday did a lot of local work as well, is creating these huge, intricate murals, these pen and ink drawings um, that are metaphor rich and they tell stories about social justice issues. And so we use those graphics uh, to do uh, educational campaigns and what we call cross-pollinating the grassroots, um, where we really just mix up a bunch of people from different scenes and different movements, um, you know, and, you know, just different backgrounds uh, to come together and have these conversations. Yeah, I would say, you know, I sort of came to the collective I think in 2014 I was initially a fan (laughs) and then I brought the collective um to my home community actually in California which sparked this project um but yeah the collective is really powerful and I think serves a very specific niche in the movement space of being able to draw parallels and connections between different um cross-issue advocacy movements, um, and really also trying to prefigure worlds that we want to create, but also uh, shine light at the injustices and um, sort of structural oppressions that are inhibiting us from that world. Um, And yeah, the collective is made up of people from across, uh, across many places, I think primarily from the US, Canada, and Mexico. And Colombia. Uh, and Colombia. Well, I think we've become a global collective, too, because we have also <laughs> Carlos from Spain. Just a lot of people. But, um, yeah, the, the the work really helps build the foundation for uh, sustained movements for the long haul and, and tangible social change. So, yeah. 
Excellent. Can you share more? You referenced cross-pollination, and I love when our movements are able to draw inspiration, metaphor, and actual ecological lessons from ecology for how we structure our movements. I'm appreciating, I'm thinking about like Adrienne Marie Brown and other Mm -hmm. folks who have helped us really think about how a study of ecology and of ecosystems has lessons for how we structure our social movements and pollinators, bees as the structure was not a random, that wasn't just your favorite animal, I'm sure, right? You thought about like, what is, what's the role that bees play in the ecosystem they exist in and what the role that you all play in the, the, the uh, cultural worker, artists and social movements you're a part of. What does it mean to have modeled yourselves after beehives and bees? Well, I think... There's a really beautiful metaphor there in terms of cross-pollination when, you know, the bees are going around and helping flowers turn into fruit. Um, You know, and I really do feel like we have a role, it's not our complete role, but of nurturing social movements in the sense that what we create is something beautiful. And we try to create works and we never draw humans, we only draw animals. Uh, so that people are allowed to identify based on what the creature or plant is doing and what their role is rather than what they look like. And we create these beautiful works that we want people to see themselves in. And so when we're talking about, you know, all of these intersections of social issues, we're also talking about, you know, different tactics, right? We want the person that's working on the community garden to be a part of the same ecosystem as the people that are locking down and, you know, stopping the um, coal trucks from <laughs> leaving the port. You know, we, we, we want everyone to see themselves and then appreciate uh, not only their own role, but also the roles that other people are playing. And I see um, this, when people come to and appreciate our work and see themselves in it, I think it does give a sort of morale boost to uh, them, which sometimes this work can be thankless. And it's nice to see um, uh, cultural work uh, that reflects in a beautiful way what you're doing. Yeah, I think to to kind of speak to that as well, I feel like um, bees are sort of the through line to uh, just like sort of a majority of the food that is produced. And I think in a beautiful way, I think... Um, what we've tried to hold as a collective is sort of creating a resource that um, is creating an ensemble story and to what Saku was saying, like reflecting back and paying tribute to movements that are beyond us and alongside us. And I think that's something that's really important. And the other piece of it too is I think the ethos of our collective is really built on this uh, really powerful Audre Lorde quote um, you know, that we don't live single issue lives, mm-hmm. that we're in a pris- prism of multiple issues uh, playing on each other and activating each other. And I think it's my deep belief that, you know, if intersectional oppression exists, then intersectional justice exists right alongside it. Then I think our role is to try to shine lights on both so that we can understand what to do collectively because these graphics are never meant to just be static images on walls. They're meant to activate and actualize the collective labor that's needed to materialize liberation, right? Mm -hmm. And so I feel like that's, yeah, one of our deep, yeah, deep purposes, I guess. Yeah, and help us then understand 
where category fits into that, you know, if you're talking about hoping that these pieces really activate a particular struggle for liberation, where does category fit into the arc of the different images and projects that you've done? And Orion, you named that this is both close to your heart, but also really coming from your experience in the Central Valley. So tell us, tell us what category is. Yeah, yeah. So uh, the Caligori, um, shorthand for the California Allegory, is a the it's a trilogy of images, um, and it's sort of a, a sister project to the Beehive, although deep in kinship with the collective. Um, that's creating uh, a campaign, uh, an educational campaign with these images, specifically about California's role in global justice. And there are three images in the trilogy. Uh, the first is really hyper-locally focused on the Sacramento-San Joaquin Delta, which is the largest set of uh, freshwater rivers on the West Coast. Um, and the exposition, which we're going to be presenting tonight, uh, is sort of drawing connections between the Bay Area and the Central Valley. And then the final poster, called The Climax, is actually a poster about the entire state of California and drawing uh, tributes to uh, social movements across the state, but also really seeing California as a metaphor for global justice. I think often because California is so associated with internationalism and a lot of the things that are inherently connected to this land specifically are connected to global patterns, right? We're talking about agriculture, we're talking about technology, or even culture. And do I understand right that you're taking the category next to the Central Valley? We're taking the Calgary next to the Central Valley. Yeah, we're taking it. We have a couple more shows happening, one in Stockton, uh, and then we have another show happening in Merced. But this is like pretty special because I think we're starting to take the graphic on the road and actualizing it. Um, so yeah, there's more to come, obviously, but yeah, we're excited. And what are those specific struggles in the Central Valley that this really revolves around? Yeah. Um, there's many different issues portrayed in the exposition. Um, a couple of them are sort of drawing parallels between the gold rush and the tech boom and sort of the patterns of displacement that occur in each. Uh, migrant farm workers and the plight of our food production systems. Uh, we have scenes about water privatization. That's huge given the tunnel project that's trying to be put forward. Um, there's some stuff happening uh, around wildfires, of course, uh, and even the like material and mental impacts of technology, particularly social media. So there's a lot. <laughs> I'm so excited to see the actual imagery I think about when I drive down toward the Central Valley, the just really striking visuals that you see. I think about Kern County and all the oil wells. I think about farm workers in the fields and this escalating heat and then the smoke that travels there from the wildfires. Yes. I think about just the fights over water, right? There's all these signs as you drive down the five that say, stop the Congress created dust bowl or something like that. They're actually really signs from big ag, right? That's about like trying to get more water to increase their profits while communities, they're trying to save salmon, you know, further up north in Kappa. So I'm just, I'm so excited to see the imagery that you you all have chosen. So thank you um, and can't wait for tonight. But in the meantime, I wanted maybe Saku for you or if you want to start this one off, I'm curious about your process. So what's been so exciting to me about following the Beehive collected over the years and, and the sister project I'm excited to hear about tonight 
is that what we see of your work are these really powerful, intricate, hand-drawn illustrations, but the bulk of your work is actually listening to communities and their struggles on the ground, right? From Latin America to Appalachia, and then sketching out these images to represent their lives, and then taking those back to communities, getting that feedback, honing the images. So tell us more about how do you see your role as artists and cultural workers in collaboration with those communities And what does accountability to those communities look like, those communities that you're building with and who are represented in your images? So um, all of our posters start with a tour of the area that is most impacted by whatever issues that we're presenting. And so, um, you know, I would say all of our posters, with the exception of the first narrative graphic that we ever made, that really showed us the power of graphic narrative pieces, uh, but also uh, people critiqued that poster, which was about the FTAA, the Free Trade Area of Americas, because we showed the resistance as like protesters and people wearing signs and roller skates. And, <laughs> you know, um, it, w- it was very flat uh, in terms of representation of a res- resistance. And so uh, that's when we started our process of going to the places uh, that are impacted. And we show them our past pieces and we talk to them about what we are all about. And then we ask them how they would like to be represented. Uh, You know, often um, asking what animals they would like to be um, and asking them questions about not only what issues that they face, but also how they relate to the local ecology of the region. And, you know, throughout the process of creating the graphic, we do send often send drafts, you know, to people that we spoke to of the sketches and things like that. But also, even after the poster or, you know, banner is done, uh, going back into those communities, um, you know, giving, we give half of our print run away for free to the areas most impacted, um, either free to front lines or, um, you know, as fundraising tools uh, to people uh, that are doing that work um, in those countries or in those regions. And, um, you know, so that they can use it as an educational tool as well. And I feel like, you know, I've been presenting Mesoamerica Resiste, for example, since 2008. So that's since five years before it was finished. And and I feel like my presentation style is just the culmination of all the things I've learned on tour, you know, while we were creating it. I, I should have told you this. I have Mesoamerica Resiste on my bedroom wall, so it's the first thing that I see every morning that I wake up. Oh. And for a long time, I had, uh, in my old house, I had on one side, and then I moved, and I was like, oh, this is the opportunity to turn it <laughs> to the other side. And the side that has now has, of course, all of, was it, is it like 400 animals that are indigenous to Mesoamerica? Mm-hmm. And the one that I love is there's a little, y- y'all know, I'm a social movement photographer, so there's one that has the little, I think it's like a lizard or something that has the camera and I'm every time I'm like oh that's me I'm in it oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. the social movement photographers are well represented in it so uh-huh. just thank you so much for your work presenting it and it's, it's incredible to hear about the process that goes into that I don't know if there's anything that you want to add to that process yeah I would just say that uh just to add a little bit um I think the ways that we sort of uh are accountable to communities is really um really wanting it to be a love letter to the social movements and to the folks that are beyond us that are doing this work because many hands make for light work uh as we tackle these different issues um and yeah a lot of 
a lot. I feel like one of the most powerful parts of this process is how to create these sort of sleeper strategies to unearth these extractive movements. I think one really beautiful shining example is the True Cost of Coal poster, and it's like a company educational campaign built a strong enough coalition to like make a huge wave in the mountaintop like removal justice scene um and that's like a big inspiration for me thinking about the ways that we're actually building fields of consciousness that if someone or if many people uh politically understand the consciousness of all the issues represented in a poster that becomes a field of multiple people that have many different types of skills, then you have a mass of people that are engaged to take direct action and intervene in all sorts of ways. And we want to make resources that are supportive to people of many skills, uh, both within the process of the poster itself, because we have artists that are engaged, researchers, organizers, direct lived experience people in helping inform the poster, but also people outside of the poster once it's done, the people that are in the halls of power, like in legislative spaces or folks that are throwing down like indirect action on the streets. And so there's a spectrum of people that we hope to engage. And I think that's one way that, uh, one reminder that really keeps me grounded as far as how to be accountable to, yeah, this ensemble story again, you know. And it's a little bit unrelated to the question, but vibing off a little bit of what you're saying here. Uh, one of the things that, um, the you know coalfields communities really appreciated about the true cost of coal is that as it was presented it was a tool that was not polarizing um to talk about this you know issue of mountaintop removal coal mining and the reason it's not polarizing is because we go far enough back where we're talking about the resistance from the coal miners themselves against the mechanization of coal mining and looking back at that history where actually the way things are right now um, was also like anti-worker, you know, and, and people that are now sometimes polarized against, you know, the environmental activists and whatnot. And I just think that art is such an amazing way of opening people's eyes to different perspectives because, you know, we can present for all sorts of different audiences. Sometimes it's a room full of activists. Sometimes it's a room full of people that are completely random that have completely different politics and they're all really engaged even if they're i can tell by you know their face that they're kind of actively resisting the anti-capitalist propaganda they're like tell me more yes you know i want to yes. understand these clever metaphors and <laughs> you know and you can see through story and through you know, sharing not just an analysis, but also different perspectives, um, that art is keeping them engaged enough to actually receive a perspective that maybe they've never heard before, that they have to admit is valid, right? Because it's not just a, a differing ideology, but it's it's a, a person's story. And unlikely alliances and powerful coalitions, I feel like, yeah. for sure. Like 
came up in the labor movement and was doing climate justice organizing, one of the like just biggest lessons from that was so many of these workers who are in extractive industries have like you know, it is, they have been exploited from the very industries that have extracted from the land, this idea that what we do to the land, we do to the people, what we do to the people, we do to the land, yes. and have the, have contributed personally the least to the degradation of our, our, our biosphere, and yet have the fewest resources as a function of that exploitation to shoulder what that transition is going to look like from an extractive to a regenerative economy. And so trying to figure out, like, what do we, where are the mm-hmm. stories we're telling, and just this idea that so many of the the, the uh, oppressive structures that impact our daily lives start, I forget whose quote this is, and I'm going to butcher it, but start the story with, and secondly, right, is to start the story in one place and not give us that full history. And so I just love that right. y'all thought to go back that far and created something that was such a, a, a movement conversation piece for so many folks. Um, tell us more. I'd love to hear a little bit about you know, the, the collective, as your name suggests, is a decentralized collective, if I understand it right, and please correct me, so many folks are, are, are all folks are part-time, most folks are volunteer artists, and that your campaigns don't necessarily have like a, a head artist or a head storyteller. And often for the projects, individual artists aren't even named. We know this is a sister project, so we are using your names in this circumstance. But in the collective, the images you create are licensed under um, Creative Commons. They're not copyrighted. Why is the way you choose to do this work as important as the actual imagery that you're producing? How's the how as important as the what? There's a deep meaning underneath it. And the Caligari also, too, like, with like this project, it's similar. Like we don't really have a attribution tri- to specific artists, um, but I think without all the graphics of the beehive, I think the reason why we decide not to is to really embody that this is a collective story that we're actually just channeling many people mm-hmm. to tell it. Um, and artists are often the most visible, like ingredients in the poster. But even then, there's so many people that have helped do the research, uh, learn the species, uh, digest it and synthesize the stories from people that we reached out to. Uh, and I think that sort of speaks to a broader ethos that we have about just wanting to have, I feel like almost the mythical quality of it being anonymous creates momentum and possibility for the stories that come from the graphic to be bigger and to be more impactful because there's many different people that play a role in it. Um, yeah, that's my first take on it. What do you think, Saku? Well, to be anti-copyright um, and all that kind of stuff, we just want it to be available to people. Um, they're teaching tools and we want to get them in as many hands as possible. And we don't want the emphasizer, emphasis to be on who created it, you know, but really have uh, these pieces used by a lot of people and uh, to find their own, you know, use and like ownership of it. Um, and so, you know, I think, um, you know, a lot of the reason why we are anonymous about who does the art in particular is to take the art ego out of the creation of it. That was the intention. Um, but I also think it's good for recruitment, you know, I mean, in terms of we need people to continue to tell these stories and to do the educational work. And, you know, there has been bees recruited since after we created, you know, some of the pieces that we created. But 
that their role is just as valid in being these, you know, educator bees and going out um, to do this work and, you know, kind of combating a little bit of the um, imposter syndrome or whatever could come along with that. Uh, because we don't want it to be limited to only the people that put the pen to the paper, because then the stories would die, because those people would move on to new projects. Yeah. And, and you know, uh, there would be no one feeling like it's theirs to tell, um, or that that's a, a valid role. Yes. All of that. <laughs> yes, yes to all of that. Last big question. Mm-hmm. So much of what we talk about often gets talked about as environment or as climate. And I think it's how I see the world and I see echoes of this in so much of what you all do that it's really a loss of biological and cultural diversity that's really the keystone crisis is the loss of traditional and ecological knowledge. And I'm wondering if you can just speak to, I'm thinking about the Mesoamerica Resiste piece with just hundreds of these different um, incredible beings what you see as the link between cultural and ecological diversity. Is there for you a, what is the relationship between the work that you're doing as cultural workers and uplifting, protecting biological and cultural diversity? I feel like the images really sort of embody that as these species are also telling stories of human roles in the extinction and devastation on the planet and I think that creates a sort of empathy in that middle space of recognizing that cultural erasure is biological extinction and vice versa that with every language that's lost or with every species that's lost we lose uh, ourselves and there's such a deep theme I think that's resident in all of our graphics around interconnectedness interconnectedness of issues, interconnectedness with us and the other than human. And I think that's uh, a worldview that I think we're really committed to trying to keep alive also. (laughs) You know, I think in such industrial and uh, kind of numb times, I think it's important to hold on to that heart uh, and love for all the different parts of the planet. Uh, That'd be my first attempt at answering that. Mm Mm-hmm. And I would say that, like, a lot of our work is complete rebellion against um, the settler colonial culture uh, that we see carbon copied around the world. You know, you go to Australia, you go to Canada, and you see see this incredibly um, unsustainable new culture that has no roots in you know the um territory where it's implanted itself you know um has no sustainability you know is is very linear in the sense that it just produces a lot of waste and you know and and here you see people in the society struggling to find you know what is sustainable and what is um you know, what would it be to live closer to the earth or in a way that we could, yeah, sustain for like a thousand years without completely just like running dry of resources and everything else. And then like Mesoamerica Resiste, you see people that already have that culture that are trying to protect it from this colonial invasion, you know? And um, 
And that's beautiful. You know, and it's beautiful that they have this awareness, that they know that this culture is sick, you know, and it's marketed to their children and it's, you know, this consumerism and it's, it's deliberately subsidized so that at first it's the cheaper option, you know, (laughs) but of course, you know, it's, it's a path towards destruction and you, you see this consciousness and then you are made aware of how much we're missing out because it was you know destroyed and it was what we what we were raised up in and then you find pockets of it here and you just want to nurture it and you want to protect it and you want to um help everyone that's resisting you know especially from that really um solid foundation of culture and so yeah i just i just feel like you know we've through our travels, you know, we want to just be of assistance to everyone fighting the good fight. And, you know, it's about decolonizing, you know, the land. Yeah. And, and that has as much to do with biological diversity and cultural diversity, you know, because we're against this, you know, monoculture that has been imposed and has spread so quickly in the last couple hundred years. Thank you all for being the antidote to that. The, the, the champions of the, the polyculture, the, the everything against the monocultures. So thank you. Um, quick lightning round of silly, mostly silly questions. Cool. <laughs> Ready for it. Okay. Go to comfort food. Orange chicken. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Pasta. Yeah. Best advice you've ever gotten. You can do everything... Uh, one at a time, you can't do everything at once. Oh, from uh, one of my movement, he's not really an elder, but be kind. Uh, petri, like a special, uh, Petri dish was telling me this, like especially if you're viewed as a leader in anything, you just always have to put the effort in to be kind. That's right. Okay. Book, movie, TV show, podcast, radio program, not one of each, just one. What's What's something you're into right now? <laughs> well, guilty okay. pleasures are totally fine. This, this totally isn't like probably top of mind, but I was just telling Ryan about it the other day, which is the good place. Like I watched it, I was like, oh my god, this is like my trash guilty pleasure. And then it made this twist, and I was like, oh, I like this. It actually has way better politics than I was expecting because I was just here for the laughs. Um, anyways, but that's like you know something I just recently discovered. Um, <laughs> you can check go. This, out. this question's mostly just to build my own list. Yes. Yeah, what, I, what, should I, what should I be watching? I Ryan? unfortunately have a guilty pleasure and I don't condone the multi-million, maybe billion dollar company that produces this. But uh, I really loved the portrayal of grief in that show, WandaVision. Oh, I don't know it. Yeah. What's it on? It's uh oh. It's on. No, it's okay. on That's the board. It's, 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 a bad streaming, it's a bad streaming service that you should not support. I will look it up on my own. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just just bit torrented or whatever. Yeah, yeah, limeware. I just saw the boy and the gray heron, and the portrayal of grief in that was really phenomenal. Um, so I've been appreciating stories that help us grapple with our grief. So yes. Last one, an artist or cultural worker that we should host on this podcast. Who do you want to nominate? Oh, I was going to say Elle Jones. And so that's honoring the fact that I am from, or I live 
actually I should say, in, you know, um, Halifax, Mi'kma'ki, Nova Scotia, and Elle is this amazing uh, poet, um, academic, and abolitionist. And she's just genius. And I think her work should be known everywhere. But there's this thing that happens in Nova Scotia. We're so isolated that we, we have this term. It's called Halley famous. You know, because you're only famous in Halifax. Yes. And, you know, <laughs> the world. I mean, I think she's more famous than that. But the world needs to know Elle Jones. I love that. Uh, many names come to mind, but I'll just name one person. I don't know. Maybe she's already been on this podcast, but um, I don't know if you're familiar with Morgan Curtis. Oh, yeah. not personally, but yes, I've yes. heard of Morgan. Okay. Morgan is incredible. So not only has she been part of one of the phases of the Calgary, but uh, she is a very amazing, inspiring wealth redistribution activist. And sort of coaches wealthy white people to redistribute their wealth, but does ancestral learning alongside it so that they can actually redistribute uh, to 10 specific wounds that their ancestors have caused. Uh, So it's really powerful stuff. Uh, She is a dear friend. And yeah, I think she has so much to say that is really beautiful and healing Mm. in these times. We need so much more of that in the world. And this is going to be my excuse to get to know her. That's great. (laughs) Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Saku and Orion, for joining us today. For just like incredibly insightful and powerful words and images and community building. And can you remind us how people can find and follow the Beehive Design Collective, how they can follow the Caligory, and if either of you want to be followed individually? Sure. Yeah. Beehive Design Collective on Instagram or Facebook. Um, and we also have the beehivecollective.org website. Yes. And then to follow the Caligori, you can follow the Caligori at the Caligori. Two L's. <laughs> two L's. Two, yes, exactly. Two L's and spelled like allegory. So C-A-L-L-E-G-O-R-Y on Instagram. And also, I believe, on Facebook as the California Allegory. And uh, if you want to follow us personally, <laughs> uh, Cosmic Floral is my Instagram. And I think that's a wrap. Thank you both so much. Thank, Thank you. you. Yeah, so that's the end of the conversation with Saku and Orion from the Beehive Design Collective. But before I go, I wanted to just go back to this conversation or this part of the conversation where Saku was talking about how in their work on the true cost of coal poster, they went back far enough to represent the coal miners' own struggles against the mechanization of coal. And that in doing so, they really did justice to those workers' stories and their experiences so that it was possible for the piece to become fodder for conversation and shared struggle, not polarization. And you may have heard me in the episode, I was really like grasping to remember this quote about how you do injustice to a people's story by starting that story with you know, something like, and secondly, dot, dot, dot. But I couldn't quite remember the quote. And so after the episode, I looked it up and I was just re-amazed at how powerful it is. So I wanted to share it with you. It comes from Chimamanda Adichie's 2009 TED Talk in which she says, quote, power is the ability not just to tell the story of another person, but to make it the definitive story of that person. 
The Palestinian poet Murid Baghuti writes that if you want to dispossess a people, the simplest way to do it is to tell their story and to start with secondly. Start the story with the arrows of the Native Americans and not with the arrival of the British and you have an entirely different story. Start the story with the failure of the African state and not with the colonial creation of the African state and you have an entirely different story." End quote. And just a quick shout out to my friend Shonda Ja for introducing me to this quote. The first place that I'd heard the quote was in the introduction to Shonda's book, which is called Pre-Post-Racial America, Spiritual Stories from the Front Lines. I always learn so much from you, Shonda. Thank you so much for this. And thank you, Saku and Orion from the Beehive Collective and the Caligari for the care, integrity, and brilliance with which you engage in solidarity storytelling with the communities with which you're in relationship. And congratulations on the launch of the Caligari. And as a reminder, you can find the Beehive Design Collective on Instagram at beehive design collective and you can find the category on instagram at the category and you can find this podcast online at that's how the light gets in podcast and you can find me your host brooke anderson on instagram at movement photographer lastly do you have an artist or cultural worker in mind that we should host on the podcast if so let us know and we'll reach out to them thanks for tuning in to that's how the light gets in see you next week